This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. There is a massive column in the Atlantic, the dangerous experiment on teen girls. The preponderance of the evidence suggests that social media is causing real damage to adolescents. Well, there's no doubt about that, and the column really makes the case. Does it have a hidden religion angle? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. This Atlantic piece, strictly speaking, isn't a news story. It's a column, very informative, by the way. What's the religion news story that you see in it? Well, at Get Religion, my colleague... We like to refer to him as the religion beat patriarch. Richard Osling writes a feature every week, which we call a memo. And in the memo, he picks up something from the world of religion or culture or whatever and suggests to religion beat reporters that this might be something worth watching. Not so much that this is hard news at this moment in time, but that he can see stories coming out of it. So this might be the rare case where I'd like our listeners to consider this kind of a a Mattingly memo about something. But it's a topic that I've been concerned about. I dare say I've been concerned about it for three decades, which may cause some people to think, wait a minute, social media hasn't existed for three decades. So let me give listeners a bit of a hint on where I'm coming from. If you flash back to the beginning of the 90s, I had just joined the staff and kind of adjunct faculty of Denver Theological Seminary to teach a course on the impact of mass media on the world in which the church was ministering. And at that time, some of us who read journals and things knew the Internet was coming, but the big concern at that moment was cable television. And cable television had taken the world of, like, three or four broadcast things and then blown it up into this world of, like, 180-something channels. And quite frankly, parents were struggling like crazy to know how to handle it. One commentator observed that if parents put a television in their child's room, they would, quote, get the family life that they deserve. Unquote. And I was intrigued by some of the evidence that cable television and MTV and other things from that era might be linked to a sharp spike in the statistics for anorexia and bulimia, in particular because mass media theorists were noting that the primary message of advertising and then of the world of MTV the things that it was telling young people over and over was, you don't own this, and you don't look like this. And that's still true, of course, today in television and in most film. So I was trying to get ministers, seminarians in particular, 
youth ministers, counselors, to think about the impact of mass media on young people and their parents and Americans in general, both in the pews and outside the pews. Because I think you could certainly say that if mass media is having an impact on church people, it's having an even bigger impact on non-church people. Well, in the midst of that, I came up with something that longtime listeners may recall, and it was kind of the Terry Mattingly definition of discipleship. And I defined discipleship with three questions. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? And how do you make your decisions? So if you think about those three questions, and then you read this article about Instagram and Facebook and their impact in particular on very young girls in our culture right now, you can see exactly where I'm coming from. The uh, New York writer, a, kind of a liberal Jewish writer in New York named Marie Wynn, who was famous for writing a book called The Plug-In Drug, and she was writing about television, and then she's updated the book a couple of times since then. But concerning television, she came up with a memorable phrase that said that television, cable television in particular, was allowing our children to roam the world, quote, in the company of strangers before they're old enough to cross the street. So if you're thinking about television in that regard, if television is a door into the home through which content comes, and television in the hands of a preteen or a teenager is a door that is unlocked and parents are not even monitoring it, what would you call a smartphone in the pocket of a 13-year-old with unlimited access to the Internet and everything that's on it? If a television is a door, what's that? And so that's the basic concern that brings me to this article. And, you know, I mentioned this at the Issues Etc. conference almost two years ago, and I've been trying to get church leaders to think seriously about this ever since. This article just punched that button again big time. So if you were kind of dashing off this memo of yours, what story would you say we should pursue first in the emerging, it's not only a consensus or an opinion, it's, as the Atlantic writer says, it's the evidence that eliminates almost all factors except for the emergence of social media. How would you say this is the religion angle there? Well, it's particularly interesting if you look at the date of the arrival of the iPhone. And I'm not blaming Apple here. I'm talking about the dawn of the modern smartphone. If you look at that date and then after that, you trace statistics for anxiety, depression, threats of suicide, self-harm, and everything. And if you focus on young people between, say, the ages of 10 and 18, the statistics are, are stunning. And this article, as you noted, contain a lot of them. I was struck by some statistics that noted that 80% of high schoolers are on social media every day, and 25% said they were on social media constantly. That figures from 2014. That was eight years ago. Can you imagine what those stats would be like today? And in particular, this article focuses on the kind of 
bullying, female digital bullying that is common on Instagram, or at the very least what I recently read an article that came up with a memorable phrase to describe mass amounts of the contents of TikTok. And it described it as a venue for sexual narcissism. I mean, in the sense that young women are like competing with each other to see who can display images that are legal within Instagram and whatever. It's kind of PG-13, but it's still really strong stuff that they're being asked to display over and over competing with each other for likes, mentions, forwards, and whatever. And girls in particular, this article note, single out Instagram as the single most powerful piece of social media for them and the one that they consider to be the most addictive and the most damaging. And I, I thought it was fascinating that it said Snapchat, the software for Snapchat, tends to focus on a girl's face, whereas Instagram tends to focus on her body and how she's presenting herself as a part of the social world and, in effect, putting herself out there to be judged. Okay, so what does this have to do with the church? I think reporters, if they called up the youth divisions of major denominations and youth studies people at seminaries, you might not find that they're able to deal with these things in classrooms, but people are starting to hear from pastors that they are completely overwhelmed with this. And at the same time, this is a subject that you simply can't discuss because it's too controversial. You're, in effect, asking parents to consider controlling their children's smartphones. And it would appear that that is something that is impossible to do unless you start with decisions made at the ages of like five, six, seven, and eight, which is when parents start handing smartphones to their children in many cases. And so you can see that I'm not saying that this is a religious issue in and of itself unless you consider the temptations and addictions of social media to be a religion subject. And unless you consider the fading levels of religious practice in exactly the generation that's being defined by this social media, and then you look at the struggles of the parents to even discuss this, at that point, I want to look at reporters and say, what happens to ministers, bishops, seminary professors? What happens to these people when you ask them about this impact on the moral and social life of the young? You also took a look at a Wall Street Journal resource oh, yeah. called Teen Mental Health Deep Dive, and it has a lot to do with the subject we're discussing. But you also noticed something conspicuously absent from all of the information that was presented there by the Wall Street Journal. You have to go through about 75% of the screens about children, young people, and social media, which present a lot of conflicting information. Young people will say, oh, Instagram is wonderful in that it helps me talk to my friends, it keeps me connected, and then at the same time they say, this is leading to depression, this is leading to 
incredible levels of judgment and I hate what people say about me, but then I love what other people, you know, this conflicted sense of nature. You scroll down through like 20 screens of material, at least 15, 20, 25, and you finally hit a slide where students, children say they wish friends and parents could help them with the challenges that they're facing in their life, including social media, but at the same time, they say, here's a quote from a, a young woman in England, talking to your family doesn't help because they can't understand and they don't get what you need. How are they going to tell the people who literally gave you life that you don't want it anymore? Well, who are tell the people in that? That's obviously a reference to the people who create social media. The people who literally gave you life. Oh, I'm sorry. I misinterpreted that. How are you going to tell the people who literally gave you life? That's the parents. I'm sorry. I misunderstood that. That you don't want it anymore. And that, I guess, the it is life. Some of the items in that slide that struck me in particular, it just, you know, parents came of age in a time before smartphones and social media, and they just don't know what's going on. They don't understand, above all, that things that teenagers have always been concerned about. How do I look? Do people like me? What can I do to make people like me? All of that has been amplified and cranked up by social media. And then I would add, based on my own reading, parents in particular don't understand that when their children go through the door of their bedroom at night at about 10 o'clock, that's when life just starts in social media for many of these young people. And it's a direct jump from people saying that we have a crisis right now among young people in sleep deprivation and anxiety and attention deficit issues. It's a short jump from that to tracing all those back to the year when the smartphone arrives and people started handing it to their children. So, I mean, What's missing from this pages and pages of resources related to teen mental health is any discussion of parents. It's like parents don't exist in discussing this issue. So, Terry, before we get to some of the proposed legislation to kind of treat big tech like big tobacco, turn over your data, so to speak, struck me that if parents are missing from the deep dive that an institution like the Wall Street Journal did, pastors are nowhere on the radar. Yeah, look at, if you consider statistics, I used to ask seminarians to consider doing some basic math. I would say the math has only gotten worse, and that would be like the number of hours a week that young people watch television. That was the question we were asking in 1990 one or 92, and people gave up trying to chart how many hours that was. Well, now you consider that since that, you've had the laptop computer come along, and then you've had the smartphone. No one today even attempts to chart the number of hours that young people are living in screen culture because they don't know how to count 
hours when they're involved with multiple screens at the same time. Which is an interesting problem to have. So we used to chart like the number of hours of media time versus the number of hours that they were in church. And that was a ridiculous number in 1992. What do you think that ratio would be today? I mean, it's it's tragic. It's hysterical. At which point you have to say, okay, well, what could pastors, youth leaders, church educators, what could they do to even discuss this with parents? Well, at the very least, if it's not coming from the pulpit, it doesn't exist because nothing exists in the life of the church unless that subject is validated as worthy of discussion from the pulpit. And I'm going to ask you this question as a pastor. What do you think would happen to the modern pastor if they stood in front of their congregation and said, I think we really need to think seriously about children not getting smartphone devices or getting access to social media programs and apps until they reach high school or maybe even college. How do you think that would be graded? Probably with some laughter, because as you said before, it's viewed as a practical impossibility, and parents, well, and not to mention that the parents themselves <laughs> are on their devices yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I think laughter, but I think it would be nervous laughter. And I think that if the church actually came in and began to hand out suggestions, like the book The TechWise Family by Andy Crouch, if you began to hand this out and say this is actually a part of what Christians need to think about in the age in which we live, I think the reaction would be similar to how some people responded when Rod Dreher did exactly that in his book, The Benedict Option. A lot of people simply said, this constitutes heading for the hills, living in denial, and that this is impossible. Well, if it's impossible to place any safety measures or limits on the access our children have to material of this kind, what is parenting? What is parenting about? At the same time, you mentioned the legislature that's coming in. <laughs> Years ago, Jay Leno made a joke in the TV era and the, um, the VCR era, if you can remember what a VCR is. He said that every time he walked in his parents' home, every device in his house, in their house, was flashing 12, 12, 12, 12. And what he was saying was that they didn't know how to even program the devices. Well, in most American homes right now, when something goes wrong with computers or the internet or smartphones, who do the parents ask for help? Someone under 20. Someone under 20, YouTube, social media, whatever. I would say these days, the, these young people understand far more about the use of these devices and the, uh, shall we say, the undoing of limits on these devices than parents could ever think of. So what kind of luck would parents have trying to place technical or even legal 
limits on the power of these social media companies. I think they would have about as much luck as small store owners in your town have in controlling how the public uses Amazon. And I actually think that's a pretty fair comparison. So the question is whether church leaders, pastors in particular, can stand up and say, we actually are going to have to think about ways to unplug these devices, at least for certain numbers of hours a day. We're going to have to create safety zones in which young people are not constantly plugged into these devices. I would remind you of something you and I discussed before. I wrote a column about it a couple of years ago. Some Catholic young people in Colorado tried to create something called App Free October, in which they urged their friends, and this happened after the suicide of several of their friends due to online bullying, digital bullying. They tried to convince their friends to, as one student said, unplug the devices and try to live the lives we're actually pretending to live when we put these photographs online. Try to actually live life instead of just pretend to live life in photographs that we put on Instagram to impress our friends. And their churches tried to create social instances that actually brought young people together in the context of the church in face-to-face -face contact. They did things like hiking, and they did cooking classes, and they went to nursing homes and encouraged young people to take checkerboards and cards and chessboards and play games with people in nursing homes and sit around for hours and talk and chat and with each other and with the people there and try to lessen the loneliness of one group of people as a way of, frankly, lessening the loneliness among themselves. So what I'm telling you is I don't know what the answers are. I do know that the answers are not found in silence. So I'm thinking about after the Atlantic piece is kind of a snapshot of where we're yeah. at now. And obviously you do not inculcate an entire generation of young people whose primary interaction with one another appears to be via social media and a lot of it extremely detrimental to their mental and emotional health and not have a long-term effect. So when is someone in the media going to say, let's talk about what the possible long-term effects to our society, the societal impacts of raising a generation on devices? Mm -hmm. Well, I would say that media will start covering it. You're accurate in saying they'll cover it when legislatures start talking about it. Because as we've said here a thousand million times, politics is the reality of newsrooms. And politics is the true religious faith of newsrooms. Politics is how you do things that are real. At the same time, though, for religion beat reporters, this is a case where I think the church leaders have to begin the discussion in order for reporters to then be able to cover it. It would be good if reporters called these people up and said, hey, what are you doing? But it would be even better if religious leaders we're creating programs and alerting the public to them and saying, here's how we would like to begin this discussion. 
here are some steps. Maybe Catholics could do it during Great Lent. Maybe this could take place at the beginning of the school year in religious schools and coverage of what's happening in religious schools might create discussion about what's happening in schools in general. You see the point I'm making? Something is going to have to be organized and done and then publicized in order for it to get covered. At the very least, churches are going to have to start talking about this and making an attempt to bring this into their pulpits and into their youth programs. And by the way, it sure wouldn't hurt if this was discussed in seminaries, because seminaries is where pastors get their concepts about what forms valid ministry and important ministry. Ordinarily, with regard to issues like religious freedom, it is not unusual to see a coalition of church leaders, Mm -hmm. religious thinkers called in. They may even address a committee of our representatives at the national level. They'll testify, and their opinions will be valued because they have a stake in that. Do religious leaders and and believers have a stake in this to the degree (laughs) to which we're talking about not just America's children, but our own children as well, and maybe get up there and say, look, at the level of Congress, I have a concern about the future of this country, but I also have a concern about my own children and grandchildren's lives as adults as a result of this. We really need as a nation to act to protect our children. Well, like I said, that's valid. But at the moment, we can't even say that from the pulpit without causing controversy, without people laughing about it and thinking it's impossible. Right now, I mean, to my knowledge, we still, I know listeners, some listeners are going to get tired of me saying this. In the early 90s, we were concerned that there wasn't a single seminary in America with a required class for ministers in which they were confronted with the power of mass media in the lives of their people. And that was 1992. To my knowledge today, there is no class required in any American seminary in which future pastors, counselors, youth ministers, educators are required to confront the power of mass media in the lives of their people. There is just this gigantic blind spot If the church can't even deal with this or even discuss it, how do we expect the government to? I mean, I could see religious leaders going in and saying that to members of Congress, but what would they say if the members of Congress immediately said, okay, excellent idea, what are you guys doing? What are you doing to help parents deal with this issue? That would be, I think that would be a pretty embarrassing moment as things stand now. If I ran the world of denominational and religious life, an article like this piece in the Atlantic, and dozens and dozens of those similar to it, would be going out on listservs as required reading by clergy and denominations. And just, they might get depressed, they might feel buried, but at some point they have to know this subject is real, this is affecting the lives of your young people, this is discussing how your young people spend their time, their money, and how they're making their decisions. And if you're claiming your ministry 
has anything to do with creating disciples for Jesus Christ. How do you do that without even asking these basic kind of questions? Period. So finally, you are now going to put on your editor's hat, and you're going to say, there was an excellent piece in The Atlantic that laid out a lot of very disturbing information and made a case that this is, needs to be a issue of national importance. What's the next story that you assign? Is there a seminary in your zip code? I would go to that seminary and ask what they're teaching on this subject. Since the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Episcopal Church, the Orthodox Church, since they have bishops, you could attempt to get an interview with these ecclesiastical leaders and ask them what they're doing. It would be very interesting to put this in a different context. If you asked liberal Reformed Jews what they think of this subject, and then you asked the Orthodox Jews what they think, I think we think of the Orthodox Jews as people who have very strict rules about what's going on in their homes and their diets and their clothing and whether they walk or drive cars on the Sabbath. <laughs> I think it would be interesting to ask Orthodox Jewish leaders if they have this issue under control. And if so, how are they doing it? Ask leaders of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints if they have this issue under control. You, you see where I'm going with this. Ask culturally conservative religious leaders what they think of this subject and what they would propose that their people do about this subject. I predict you would get silence, but you might get some interesting responses that would open the door for coverage. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book, Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thank you. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.